This is First Nature on the Rising Men Podcast. Good day to you, Rising Man family. This is your host, Sean Berry, right here on the First Nature segment of the Rising Man podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. It is November. Can you believe it? We're almost done with 2023. And uh, I've got some news to share, which I will. But first, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the podcast today. So um, this recording actually was made uh, about two months ago when I was spending some time in Ojai, California. Uh, it was really, really warm here in the evenings, which isn't too unusual for Ojai. It's a little inland off the coast, but in general in coastal California, uh, you don't really get the warm summer nights like you do back in the Midwest where I grew up. Um, but here in Ojai, it was. It was like full-on shorts and t-shirt, like warm weather, uh, like 11.30 midnight. And uh, I wanted to go for a night walk and just take in the night sounds and uh, and just connect to nature in that way, you know, to connect with nature in a context that uh, we normally don't do a lot of, if hardly ever. I mean, how often do you think about going out at night to uh, just enjoy the outdoors, right? I mean, like outside in the woods, outside on a trail or something at night. It's just, uh, it's just really not something we do. But it's so fascinating to go out and, uh, and to do it in a way to connect with nature at night. And uh, so that's what I did. And... Um, and everything was out. You'll hear just the cacophony of the, the insects. And there's a, there was an owl hooting and there was bats flying around. And yeah, I, uh, it's funny because usually when you're out at night alone, it can feel a little scary, like you're by yourself, what could happen. Uh, but also I felt like this great connection of all the creatures. So many creatures were out in the night more though, more so than in the daytime. And so that was really fascinating to just... Uh, be on that walk and be in that space and knowing that I was being seen and there was very little that I could see. So on this walk, I started thinking about my relationship to nature and was uh, contemplating that. And then I started thinking about the word relationship in general and just, uh, you know, what does that word really mean? And uh, and that took me into this whole just uh, experience exposition on relationship with nature. What does deep relationship with nature mean? Particularly when it comes to interacting with nature, when we use nature to do things with it, how that speaks to our relationship with it. So I hope you enjoy it. It might get a little heady at points, um, but I uh, I really enjoy just kind of taking that uh, journey down through all the layers of how everything I interact with on some level is nature including myself. And, you know, that's really just one of the biggest, you know, kind of strongest, loudest messages I try to really put out here on this podcast is um, just how, you know, no matter what you're doing, where you are, uh, you're involving yourself in nature as nature. So that's it. I hope you enjoy. Here's the big news. First Nature Podcast is fledging the Rising Man Nest. That's right. Uh, starting in January 2024, First Nature will be out on its own in the big podcast world. Um, still same great content, still uh, still me hosting in the way that I've been hosting. And um, But 
reaching a bigger audience or being available for a bigger audience to reach. So I'm, I'm really thrilled about that and, and just really am so grateful for the opportunity with Rising Man for a few years, uh, just helping me get this podcast out and providing all the resources to do that. And especially with Mark and Julian and Jetty, of course, just, you know, making it a, a viable process to, to get into. So super thrilled, super grateful. And uh, more on that later, but just wanted to let you know there'll be uh, this episode and then a December episode of First Nature on Rising Man, and then um, it'll be on its own. Okay, let's get into it. I'll see you on the other side. I'm in Ojai, California. It's uh, dusk, and I'm recording video with this audio, but um, it's probably not going to come out. It's really blurry because the light is so low. But I wanted to come out and just uh, talk about my experience of nature at nighttime. What it's like to to be a crepuscular creature, crepuscular, right? A creature that comes out at dusk and dawn, which is actually a lot of mammals, a lot of mammals that way. Bats, other creatures that need a little bit of light to get around, but don't want too much. And they can't, uh, they can't really you two on the full darkness, so they, in this little window, this very auspicious time, it's not day, it's not night, it's something in between. Something in between. It's just starting to cool off. You can hear the insects. Maybe a little road traffic way back in the background. I'm walking barefoot in this park. I'm in Seoul Park, Ojai, California. It's a very tame place. At least it's, you know, it looks tame. <clears throat> I mean, it's completely ringed by sycamore and oaks, but it's probably about, you know, 15 acres of wide open manicured grass. I'm sure it used to be all oak and sycamore. So the wildness rings this place, not only in stature of the trees on the perimeter, but even just with the wildness, the sounds, the night sounds. So I was thinking about relationship, that word relationship. And uh, there was a woman I was spending some time with a few years ago and we were getting to know each other. And, you know, we had our first conversation about, hey, what are we doing? And the word relationship came up. Were we in relationship? Were we not in relationship? Did we, did we want a relationship? And uh, it occurred to me that word relationship 
a ship is a pretty big thing. And so I thought, hey, what if we just started with a relation canoe, right? A relation canoe, a relation kayak. Just something small that we both can fit in that's, you know, easy to get in and out of, doesn't need a lot of maintenance. Um, they're pretty forgiving. You don't need a lot of skill to navigate them. And then as our, you know, as we, our skills get better, we can move up to like, a, you know, actual, like a relation boat, maybe a, or like something with sails on it. And then we can get into like a, you know, like a relation yacht and eventually we'll get to the relationship, right? Something we've grown into. And uh, <clears throat> we parted ways sometime later amicably and she was, she was great. And that was a good conversation to have. And I wanted to bring that word up today in the context of relationship to nature and to realize for all of us that, uh, you know, as a human, um, we relate. That is something that makes us unique as creatures. We relate a lot. We're extremely relative creatures, beings. And what does that really mean? To relate to something, to have a relationship with something. Well, it means, you know, getting to know something in and of itself, understanding who or what it is and how it operates, uh, what makes it tick, what its behaviors and patterns are, um, you know, all these attributes, learning about the attributes. And then it's also about how we uh, you know, interact with it. How do we behave and what are our patterns when we are interacting with these external entities, whether it's a thing or a person or a creature. And to me, the, the relationship part of it is, is knowing that, you know, relationships, because we are dynamic beings, because life is dynamic, that uh, once some basic patterns and behaviors are, are laid down, we can, we can, uh, you know, we can make a, we can let ourselves have a few, a few assumptions. We don't have to be so hyper attentive, but knowing that it's going to change. Right. And if you've been any kind of any kind of, you know, relationship, whether it's with a, a partner or in a job or with, a, you know, with anything, a device, <clears throat> um, you know that uh, relationships are not static. They're not static. They are constantly changing. And they have a legacy from where they came from. That is that is building upon in the present moment. So we're dropping into a conversation about relationship and the one primary relationship I want to talk about today is the relationship with fire, humans' relationship with fire. Fire being an element that is incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful. Now we need all the elements to do all the things we do as humans all the elements are making this world tick. But humans have a, a fascination with fire, and, and why shouldn't we? It's amazing. It 
you know, it does so many things. It glows, it moves, uh, it's elusive, it's dangerous, right? It gives off heat. It can transform things. It's a very powerful element. And in the wild skills world, uh, you know, if you've ever been to a wild skills gathering or have ever uh, just gotten interested in building your own wild skills up, um, fire is usually one of those first things you want to go for, right? How to make fire, fire by friction, what, you know, whether it's hand drill or bow drill or uh, flint and steel. Um, it's really, really satisfying to make a fire off the land with nothing more than what's laying around and a little bit of, you know, sweat and diligence. So typically if you go to a wild skills gathering, um, undoubtedly there's gonna be a couple fire making uh, areas where you can make fire. And uh, usually, almost all the time, um, whoever's running that station it's going to have all the pieces already set up so you can get right to uh, working with the actual physical skill of, you know, how to, how to get fire uh, from these natural elements. So, for instance, um, I'm very fond of what's called hand drill. Hand drill is, to me, one of the most uh, simple, if not the simplest, elegant uh, ways to make fire by friction. All you need is a relatively uh, straight, uh, longer, you know, anywhere from 12 inches up. You can do it with a shorter one, but it gets a little tricky. A nice long, what's called a, a spindle. So typically it's around, you know, quarter inch wide at the bottom. And it's, it's a, a pretty straight, plant that's coming from something like mugwort or horseweed or uh, mule fat, right? And then the only other thing you need is what's called a fireboard, and that's just a nice flat, pretty flat piece of wood that's maybe uh, about, you know, two inches wide. You can get away with something a little less than two inches. Maybe about a quarter inch or so thick. And uh, and you need a knife. That's it. And these uh, you know these fire making stations will typically already have what's called the notch cut out of your fireboard, so that your spindle can sit right in the notch. And then you twirl with some downward pressure the spindle in this notch, and the downward pressure creates uh, friction and heat and starts to basically uh, turn the, the two woods making contact from the fireboard and the spindle. And you start getting this really fine, almost like a dust. It looks almost like a dark coffee ground. It's just superheated, dense uh, wood dust. And eventually it gets so hot, it starts to glow. And then you got yourself a coal. And you put that coal into a little pile of what's called tinder, usually some really fine dry grass or something that, uh, you know, has a lot of surface area and a lot of air around it. 
Um, sometimes leaves will work. Um, you drop that little colon there and you kind of cover it up so it doesn't fall out and then you start blowing into this tinder bundle so that the air goes through all the tinder into the coal and it starts to make the coal glow brighter and hotter, brighter and hotter and eventually it ignites the tinder that it's sitting in and then you get this big ball of fire suddenly and you stuff it into your little teepee full of kindling that you've prepared ahead of time and uh, with little focused concentration uh, within a minute or two you got yourself a fire it's pretty cool technology so undoubtedly uh, at these gatherings um, you'll see people furiously trying to spin you know hand drills maybe bow drills and uh, trying out flint and steel sparking into their tinder bundles and you know, depending on the uh, the wood that somebody's using, the kit that they have, it's called a kit, the spindle and the fireboard. Or depending on the, uh, you know, how good their flint and steel is sparking, they might get a coal and with a little bit of support from the instructor, they might actually get a little fire going. It's pretty exciting. It's very exciting to make fire, to never knew that to never know that that was something you could do and then to come across you know this station where the materials are there and ready and you sit down and you know 10 15 20 30 minutes maybe depending on your uh with ability to to withstand uh the wear and tear on your hands and the exhaustion that comes in because it, it does uh get your heart pumping um you can have a fire Here's the thing about the relationship. You know, spinning for a coal using fire by friction is what I'd say like uh, the highlight, right? It's it's the uh, it's the uh, it's the stage it's the it's the theatrical presentation of a production. It's the uh, it's the mushroom popping up out of the ground from a mat of mycelium running underneath the ground for, you know, dozens of yards in every direction. It's the, uh, it's the unboxing of the new iPhone, right? And it's the thing, right? Getting a coal and blowing it into fire is like this, you know, really, it's like the sum of all that went in 
to, uh, you know, having the, the ability to experience or utilize uh, that thing, that in this case, fire. And if you spin coals long enough, um, you know, you'll start to develop a relationship with the materials, right? You'll start the first time you do it. It's just two pieces of wood. You have no reference point for what kind of wood they, it is and those pieces and whether they're uh, quality pieces of wood or, uh, you know, is whether your spindle's too wide or too thin or uh, whether the fireboard, um, you know, is cut from the heart of a branch or maybe it's from the edge. And uh, um, you just don't know, right? But if you spin coals long enough, um, eventually you start to get a feel for it. Just like anything, you start to get a feel for it. You start to develop relationship. You start to get to know. There's just something about the characteristics, the attributes, the uh, behaviors of the material, right? So is that relationship with fire? Well, I would contend that no matter how good you are at busting coals and uh, blowing it into a flame and getting a fire going, that is not a relationship with fire. I would say that is a, a, relation, a relation canoe with fire, right? And so why is that? Why would I say that? Well, because I'm looking at all that it really takes to take those two pieces of wood and know, and you know, and to use them to make a fire. Like if you were in that workshop, you know, undoubtedly when you left the workshop, you probably had no idea, uh, unless you know the instructor talked about it, like where to go find that kind of wood, or what kinds of wood serve best, you know, to make a fire like that from friction. And so there's no way to really, so there's no relationship there, and. For me, a relationship is, is really looking at the whole picture. Like, what are all the pieces involved that go into something like making fire from friction? Especially if we go back far enough to a time where there weren't matches, you know, or lighters, or petroleum products, or anything, right? That's, that's everybody's ancestry. Everybody has ancestors in their lineage that if you go back far enough, um, your ancestors could only make fire, um, you know, using some kind of friction. Probably wood, rubbing two pieces of wood together. So what did they have to know? What did they have to know? Well, let's start at the start. You're gonna harvest wood. You're gonna need something to harvest it with, right? Everyone's probably broken a branch off a tree, and 99 times out of 100, the broken end's gonna be splintery and not finished in a nice, you know, straight edge, which is really kind of what you need for a good spindle, 
you're going to need some kind of, you know, cutting implements. And if we're talking about our ancient ancestors, you're going to need some kind of stone cutting implements. So what kind of stone do you need? So now we're talking about something entirely different. We're talking about relationship with stone. Getting to know the stones. <laughs> and all the sprinklers are coming on in the park right now. So I'm going to walk over to the drive. So before, you know, we can even get anywhere near making fire, we have to understand stone. What kind of stone there is? What kind of rocks? You know, what are the attributes and behaviors of different rocks? And, and learning about where certain rocks are, how to get at them, where we would have to travel to find certain rocks. And then the process of learning how to shape rock, right? You know, it's very rare to come across a rock that's got a sharp enough edge on it suitable for, you know, cutting away at wood. You would have to do some work on that rock. So then there's a whole nother level of relationship just with rock, right? The, the basic elements that holds the planet together, right? That's where the first re relation is with rock, getting to know your rock ancestors. So we start there. And that takes a while. Right, that's knowledge that has to be passed on and passed down. Um, that's rocks that has to be passed on and passed down. Uh, realize that's, um, you know, usable uh, stones that were useful uh, for making sharp edges didn't exist everywhere that people were. There's lots and lots of accounts of, you know, trade routes that have shards of obsidian and church and and other flakeable stone uh, that was traded up and down where they, you know, someone would get this big piece of obsidian, they'd carry it 50 miles up the trail. Uh, they'd chunk off a big chunk and trade it for something. And then that chunk would go further up the trail and they would get chunked again to trade for something. And then eventually someone would, you know, shape it into a number of cutting implements. And so knowing that was a valuable resource and, you know, if you've ever worked with obsidian before, it's, it's, a, it's a very unforgiving uh, stone. <laughs> it's virtually, I mean, it's literally glass. If you hit it wrong, um, you know, you might completely destroy uh, an edge that you were working on. And if, especially if you didn't have that, you know, obsidian naturally occurring where you were, well, you wouldn't just let anyone uh, be working the obsidian that had, you know, been traded up the trade route that maybe took, you know, months to maybe a year to get to you. And it wasn't going to show up again for just as long. So stone, that's the first relation, working with stone, learning what stones are good for what, and learning how to shape stone, how to shape stone into a cutting edge. Once you've got that relation, 
then it's moving on to the plants. Pretty much every uh, ancient civilization, ancient uh, tribal peoples were using fire by friction to make their fires, almost exclusively with wood. So how did they figure that out? Well, a lot of trial and error, a lot of deep listening to the plants and the way that we listen in that different way. But eventually, we would have, you know, figured it out. And with our sharp stone tools that we've made and mastered, we would begin to harvest certain woods that were good for making fire. Now, this is something really fascinating to me. So if you're uh, going to use a spindle for a hand drill, which typically comes from some kind of <clears throat> tall, thin plants. Again, mule fat, horseweed, uh, mugworts. Uh, there's a couple others out there. Um, those plants are all water-loving plants. You find those plants near water. That's where they love to be. And isn't it fascinating that some of the best plants for making fire love to be by water? But what makes those plants so good is that they grow very straight and it's very easy to uh, harvest them. Their, uh, their insides, their, um, their shafts are very porous. It's almost like a styrofoam inside those shafts. <clears throat> so they, they, uh, they insulate air very well. When you're spinning, uh, you know, that tip's getting very hot. And because of the porousness of the, the center, um, a lot of that heat will get insulated and stay inside the tip and help create a coal much faster than, say, a hard, dense wood where the heat is really just, uh, the wood can't really absorb the heat as well. It's, it's uh, you know, sinking away from the wood. And then you got your fireboard, you know, around here, alder, elderberry, nicotina. Uh, what else? These are also uh, plants that, in general, like to be closer to water. Alder trees, particularly, love to grow on the banks of the, the seasonal creeks here in Southern California. And if you get a nice piece of meal fat and uh, shape it down, clean off the leaves, get a nice smooth tip on the bottom with your cutting stone, or sanding stone. Obviously you can, you know, sand down a tip on a piece of flat stone and then harvest a nice fireboard from alder, which is definitely gonna require some kind of sharp cutting stone and a lot of elbow grease because <clears throat> you gotta cut in this little notch, right? This little like quarter inch, maybe half inch dish into the surface of that fireboard you shaped down from the alder and then on the side of it, you've got to cut in this little pie-shaped dish so that dust can fall through and collect in one place. And once you have that set up, then you're ready to spin for fire. 
spin for a coal. But again, thinking about the plants, right? And of all the plants, the thousands of different types of plants, um, the time that it took our ancestors to figure out which plants worked best and to start to develop relationships with them because you'll find that, uh, you know, every spindle is different. Every fireboard is different. Nothing grows exactly the same, even if it's growing right next to each other. So you may harvest some spindles from plants growing right next to each other and they may look almost identical in thickness and color and uh, size, but they're gonna spin differently in that notch. They're gonna behave differently. So again, you're developing relationship now with these thin pieces of wood. You're developing a relationship with that piece of alder you harvested for your fireboard and the, you know, the time that it took. Think about the time that it takes to go out, look for a good piece of wood. I mean, if you're using like a primitive ax, that's a lot of work to, uh, you know, work down a, a branch, down to a fireboard. You know, you've got a, a lot of time invested in just getting your materials the time it takes to explore an area to figure out like where are the best materials growing. You know, you could be walking along the same riverbank and for some reason, the stand of mugwort at the bend of the river just doesn't seem to perform as well as the stand of mugwort. Uh, you know, mugwort harvested from the stand where the river widens out and slows. How long does it take to figure that out? And realizing once you've put all this time into finding your sources and getting to know all your materials and working them down and whittling them. Once you have all that time and experience put in, well, you have a relationship with those pieces of wood, not just the spindle and the, f and the fireboard you made, but with the place you harvested from them, the place you harvested them from. You know one tree from another, you know that this tree has a better source of wood for fireboards than this tree. At least you think so until a couple years later, if you're still living in that same general area, and you need to harvest <laughs> more fireboards, I don't know, those roles might switch, right? Because relationships are dynamic. Maybe one of those trees is aging out and the wood is just not as good as it was and now the other tree seems to have better wood.
I've made fire enough to notice that I can harvest a spindle and get it all cleaned up and processed and ready to go and make a good fireboard. And it's almost like magic how well they can work sometimes, like generating, spinning a coal, like in less than a minute. It literally is like magic. And thinking, wow, I've got the best fire kit ever. But then like two or three weeks later, when I've had to make a new notch, because you do kind of burn through the notches, you gotta cut new ones. And your spindle is slowly getting shorter because as you spin and generate friction, uh, you're eating away at the wood. Uh, all of a sudden, that kit isn't working so good. In fact, it's not performing at all. I've uh, spent 20, 30 minutes sometimes trying to get a coal and not get one from the same spindle and fireboard I was getting coals from like in minutes just a week or two before. So what's going on there? Well, you know, that spindle might be a year or two old <clears throat> or maybe just a season old. And its growth spurt in the springtime may have just made the wood a little different than the way it was growing towards midsummer to the way it was growing towards the end of summer and how the wood changes, you know, as that stalk develops. And that shows up in your spinning technique, shows up in the performance of the wood. So relationship with the plants. And that does bring us now to relationship with, you know, making a fire. Making a fire, not tending a fire, but making a fire. We've already discussed all the, the elements necessary to, to generate that coal. We talked a little bit about tinder, what makes for good tinder, but then you've got your kindling. Right? And, and knowing, again, just the time that it takes to get familiar with like, what burns well, what doesn't burn well. Where do you know that there's good kindling to harvest? And, you know, depending on the time of year when you're harvesting kindling and um, all the awareness that goes in that we may, we may not even really think about that much. It's so nuanced sometimes, or it becomes such a second nature to us. Or not at all, we just feel that, well, it's dry, it's wood, it'll burn. And ultimately it does. But when you really start to pay attention to the details, the relationship, you know, just the fact that you have to go and collect these things, you have to bend over and pick it up off the ground and to know that it came from somewhere. It came from somewhere. Like each one of those little pieces of kindling have a story. They were once part of a mighty tree or a thriving bush. And now they're, uh, they're a little scrap on the ground about to go into a fire, about to serve fire. So now we're talking about the interrelationship between all these elements, between the plants and the stone and the fire. So we get our kindling, we spin our coal, 
get our tinder bundle to burst into flame and we light our kindling. We've got a small fire going, but now, now it's relationship with trees. Trees. Those amazing, beautiful organisms that grow towards the sky, that take sunlight and capture it. They literally capture the sun and store it so that we can release it later as fire. So now we're talking about what kind of wood burns well, what kind of trees have the kind of wood that's gonna burn well, right? Is it green wood? Is it seasoned wood? Is it hardwood? Is it soft wood? Is it wood we can get access to? Is it wood that we have to go hunting for over hills and valleys and and getting to know the trees. You know, is it a tree that's in abundance and grows fast? Or is it a tree that goes slow? And, uh, and not often, not regularly. Being mindful of how we harvest the wood and our impact on the forest and knowing that when we're harvesting downed wood off the ground that we're also taking away opportunity from the critters and the animals and the bacteria and everything that uses that downed wood for their own lives. The forest uses it to regenerate itself. So now we're getting into relation with the forests, not just the plants, not just the stone, but getting to know the forest itself. And so eventually we we come to know the forest in a way where we have relationship with it. And now we have our fire. But now, now we're moving into the esoteric. What kind of fire is it? What kind of fire is it? Are we making a fire for heat? Are we making a fire for cooking? Are we making a fire for ceremony? Are we making a fire for processing materials or to burn back the spring grass so that the hunting grounds are easy to travel through? What kind of fire is it? How do you learn to tend that kind of fire? So now we're talking now, we're talking about relationship with fire. My own journey with fire brought this all into focus. You know, before I had a, a real understanding of a relationship with fire and all the relations with the required materials and history and, uh, and with the land itself. You know, I just, fire was just something mesmerizing, uh, something, you know, that you would light and forget. You know, bonfires, my dad, we used to have a burn pile and we lived down the country in, in the Midwest. It's kind of a common thing. 
landfills are too far away, so you just have a burn pile and once or twice a year. And, you know, there's enough trash and old wood and junk on it where, uh, you know, my dad would just take a coffee can, fill it halfway up with gas from the lawnmower gas tank, dump it on the pile, and then light a match, throw it, and run. <laughs> and that whole pile would go up in this big fireball and burn for the whole afternoon. Never really looked at that fire as anything more than just a real neat light show. I never thought about the, the heat it was generating. I never thought about the materials it was burning. I never thought about the way the flames licked up and out into the air. I didn't see the personality or the character. I didn't see the life of that fire or any fire. But now I do, now I do. I do see the personality of a fire. I do see its character. I do see that it has its own intelligence, its own interests. And when I tend to fire now, even if it's just a friendly fire, you know, at a friend's, you know, fire pit where we're just socializing. To me, fire is, is part of the community. And there's all kinds of teachings about you know, what fire represents in terms of ancestry and prayer and, and uh, just the, uh, the way culture has included fire into the community story. And it took me a long time, years, typically until I was in my you know, 40s, before that I came to understand that and how rich and wonderful fire is to me now. How much respect I have for fire and how every fire that I'm around, um, I just wanna make sure it's tended well. I wanna make sure that it gets attention and that it's not forgotten or just treated like, you know, some source of heat and light and, and nothing else. It gets to the point where I can't even really, it gets difficult to watch people throw scraps of 
like paper and stuff into a fire. <laughs> I think, does, this, does the fire really want to burn cardboard right now? But what this tells me about relationship is just how rich relationship is, how rich it can be for us. And, and fire being one of those things where, you know, to truly have a relationship with fire means to really have a, a relationship with the whole history of where fire came from and all the embedded elements and knowledge and wisdom and history on that goes into actually making fire. So there's an invitation here. Relationship, that's the, uh, the topic today. And I use fire because uh, for me, I think it's a really good example of what relationship really is compared to say a relation canoe, which might just be uh, you know, limited knowledge about one aspect that we talked about today without real knowledge or experience in any of the other aspects. But relationship, this holistic, complete, uh, you know, um, experience and connection with everything involved in the beingness of something. In this case, the beingness of fire. But it could be anything. It could be anything. Again, we are relating creatures. And it doesn't really matter what you're interacting with. Um, if you're interacting with it, you have some baseline of re relation with it. <laughs> it might it might be so unconscious, it's not even a relation canoe. It might just be uh, <laughs> relation driftwood. I don't know. But the call here is to start to notice. Notice all the things you interact with. Start to bring some awareness and attention to the quality of relation you have to it. You know, both uh, this book by uh, Alan Watts and uh, this podcast I've been listening to a lot called The Emerald. One of the episodes of The Emerald uh, was talking about Anima, right? Uh, Alan Watts' book doesn't talk about anima, but it talks about the same concept in a different way, this sense that there is no separateness. There is no separateness. And the, uh, the, fa the fascinating thing about that is our, our ancient ancestors, our tribal ancestors knew this. That was the whole premise that they operated on around the world, everywhere you go. This was the assumed understanding that there, we were not separate from our environments. You know, we were in the tree and the tree was in us. We were in the sun and the sun was in us. We were in each other and each other was in us. When we hunted the deer and took the shot and sent the arrow through the heart of the deer, we were sending arrow through the heart of ourselves. Deep relationship, deep connection. That's every, 
everyone's spiritual lineage starts there. You know, Alan Watts brings in the science part of it, saying, you know, science has proven on the atomic level what they've been saying, what our people, our ancestors were saying millennia ago is true. There is no separateness. We are one and the same of everything else that we call reality. Same electrons, same base elements. And uh, when you get into the living world, we share a lot of DNA. A lot of the DNA is the same, whether it's plants or, or uh, vegetation. It's amazing how closely related we are to the banana. I think I might have said this in an earlier podcast, but like, I think it's like 60% of the DNA of the banana is the same as our human DNA. So we are related, we have relation with everything because we are one of the same. So next time you pick up your cell phone, just consider the relationship you have to your cell phone. Think about, you know, in the same way that when we blow a coal into a flame in the tinder bundle and there's that wow moment, that amazing, it's a fire, that sort of, uh, you know, mushroom moment. In the same way that when we unbox our new iPhone, um, see, or just when you pick it up, just see if you can touch into all the relationships that were required for us to have the cell phone. For us to have the cell phone. It's the level of technologies and knowledge and wisdom and dedication and research and, and life force from thousands of people around the world across dozens of years. You know, what it took to extract all the pieces, the dirt, the literal dirt from the ground that, had to, that got processed into the circuit board of your cell phone. That's relationship. That's relationship. And that's hard. That's hard. It's easy to ignore the relationship we have to our cell phones, everything that went into our cell phones, because it's so abstract, like this thing in our hand is just, it doesn't feel like nature, it doesn't look like nature, it doesn't act like nature, but it is nature. It's just that it requires so much interpretation for us, you know, intellectually to reconnect it to being a natural thing. It's a little intellectually exhausting, say, compared to, <laughs> you know, how easy it is to relate to fire uh, as being a natural thing and all that it takes to make fire. But I'm telling you, if you can learn to build that connection, that, that uh, 
that nature connection to our, our modern world, all the things in our modern world, and to start to delve into all the smaller relations that are involved in having that big overt relationship. You're going to have a deeper appreciation for these things. You're going to have a deeper value for um, taking care of them, for valuing them, for uh, just recognizing and acknowledge, acknowledging the massive amount of resource and energy and humanity that it takes to live in our modern technological world. You might find yourself more willing to... Uh, to make some balance, to take half a step away from your usury. How do you think about how much it goes into making fire? Uh, you know, you wouldn't just stomp out the fire. Like back in the day, if you were making fire the way that it was made, you know, fire by friction, when a fire was done, like usually they would keep a fire going you know, for days, just small, at least just like hot coals and stuff. Because it took a lot of time and energy and effort to start a fire from new, especially if you're on limited resources. So in the same way, you're thinking about how the, these companies come up with a new cell phone every year. And if you really start to develop a relationship with your phone in the same way that our ancestors had a relationship with fire, uh, it may not become so important for you to have the latest and greatest phone every year or even every two years. When you realize how much energy and resource is embedded in your cell phone because you've gone through and spent a little time just getting into the, the relationship of all that's included in making that phone, you know, your, your value for it's going to skyrocket. Your value for the resources, for the cost to the earth is going to jump significantly. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. All right. I think you got it. I'm going to sign off this beautiful night. The crickets and the owls, the insects, and these bats flitting around and silent stars just say thank you to this place and thank you for listening and i'll catch you next time okay folks thanks so much for listening that is the uh, the program for today hope you found something to take away and um and yeah, hope you enjoyed those night sounds. I was really just, when I was editing the content, I was really just enjoying the, the sonic sensation of just all those insects, hundreds, if not thousands of insects, just right around that area where I was and that lovely owl hooting and the bats flitting, sometimes so close I could kind of hear the, the, uh, the skin of their wings kind of, you know, flapping up against each other and getting that little, uh, that little sound really really sweet um, again just reminding you that um, this episode next episode uh, on Rising Man podcasts and then uh, First Nature is out in the big world so um, more on that when it comes but um, if you've been listening uh, just thank you so much for listening appreciate the, uh, the feedback I've gotten here and there from people who have uh, gotten some takeaways and I'm always open for 
a good you know check-in conversation around anything around nature our you know our experience nature and and just uh our walk with nature and being nature and just nature connection i wish there was a more elegant interesting way to say it but honestly that's what it is it's just connecting connection feeling that connection with nature feeling that connection with ourselves because we are nature so um that's it thanks so much for julian and mark as usual for um just cleaning this up and getting out there onto the interwebs in a good way Thanks to the entire Rising Man community and to Jetty for uh, just sponsoring this podcast and providing the, the means and the support and the resources to get it going and just kind of get my wings with it. And um, yeah, you know, find out who you are inside by getting outside. I'm Sean Barry. We'll see you next time.